I would be my booth, uh, which is a whisper booth, maybe a three by three little thing with pad, padding and all that kind of stuff. And then, yeah, uh, the director would have me on Zoom. I would open up a simultaneous program, probably on Google, which would be what they call Source Connect Now, which is their recording software. Or And then I would back it up on another window, which is QuickTime, so that they would communicate through Zoom. And once uh, they're on with me on Source Connect Now, IPDTL, IPDTL is the, the other one they use, IPDTL. Once they have you on uh, IPDTL, then you, you leave the sound on your Zoom so that they can see you and then talk to you through the recording program. So yeah, you're just opening up a couple more programs. You got your headphones in. I've got a a hype mic from Apogee. I've got a windscreen and the sound is pretty professional, you know? So it's just a couple more elements. This is, this is much easier, obviously. Sometimes I'll connect my uh, hype mic to the zoom in my office, but it picks up everything. So if a dog spark, you can, it's super intense, so, but uh, it's a little tiny bit more complex to do VO because you need that professional booth sound. So, how similar dissimilar is it from doing voiceover just during a normal time? I mean, is it usually when you go in, are you usually giving your lines to the director? Or are you actually dialoguing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the director's behind the glass, and it's it's more there's more responsibility now, and in as much as we have to be our own engineer. So when you're doing, going to Nickelodeon and doing a thing, everything's set up for you. You got free food, you got this, and the engineer sets your mic, he's behind the glass and you just sit there and you read copy. You don't have to worry about anything. It's much easier to go in and I'll, and I'll do that tomorrow. I prefer both because I've finally gotten the hang, hang of these programs and, and work through my phobia of, of technology. And I kind of look forward to going in the booth and, and doing this teamwork kind of thing. But the ease of just walking in, what what I miss though is because of the pandemic, there is no free food and no, I can't go in and get my free Mexican Coke at out loud studios tomorrow. I'm like, ah, oh, that was part of it. It's like, I'm going out loud to get Mexican Coke and a Kit Kat bar, you know, go to Nickelodeon. They'd have a nice lunch set out for you. And I'm like, ah, oh, I miss that. I'm somebody who is able to work remotely, but obviously all of the conversations I have are, are through zoom. And there's a lot of, you kind of have to relearn conversation in a lot of ways. I, you know, I'm doing this video with you. We're only going to use the audio, but it's, you know, so you can like make eye contact and, and all those things. But, you know, I have to assume that when, at least when you first start doing voiceover work and you're delivering lines in such a way where you're just, you know, talking to a director versus being able to play off of another actor, that that, that must be a difficult skill to learn, right? I mean, because you are somebody who has done obviously a ton of sketch comedy and stand up and all these other things and are and are used to playing off the energy of other people. Yeah. Well, stand up, you're playing off the energy of the crowd, the audience. And I mean, and that what Billy West always famously said is we participate in theater of the mind. So with a stand up, you write, produce, produce and direct a little bit, you know, you know, with the other, some of my bits, my daughter falls off the bed. She's falling in slow. And I'm like, no, Riley, no. And she's like, daddy. So I see the whole picture or any comic that does a bit, you know, or, you know, uh, you can name any comedian and they've, they've see the bit in their head. They see every actor, they see the, what they're going to say. They write it, they direct it, and they essentially produce it. I think stand up always had an advance. Like, yeah, I can already make it up in my head. I don't need somebody else to bounce off. Um, and it's what kids do. You know, the, I always point to the story, the uh, scene in Toy Story where the kid's like, what do you, what do you say me? Here, I'm coming to save you, Sheriff. Hey, here's you. who's that in the way? You know, it's something we do naturally as kids. You just pretend. Basically, it boils down to pretending. Can you imagine yourself in that situation? And so I'm used to it. But yeah, it's different than bouncing off 
somebody in sketch or bouncing off another actor in, in, in written form. Yeah, you, you rely on yourself to imagine more, I think. Are you the guy who, like, your wife catches you around the house or you're walking down the street and just, you know, doing some of these little <laughs> these little scenes out loud? I will, yeah. I'll sometimes play it out in front of my daughters in the car. Like, what are you doing? I'm just, t- I'm just talking to myself. Need it. But not, not too often, you know. I'm pretty straight off stage now after all the years of doing comedy and being on and voiceover and being on. I kind of save it for, I, I want to just sit and listen to other people. That'd be funny, be entertaining, tell stories. One of the guys we hang out with sometimes on our socially distant whiskey nights is Earl Brown, my neighbor who was in Deadwood and all kinds of series, you know, something about Mary. Earl's from Kentucky, man. And he could just, he'll just spin a story. And I'll go, Earl, you go, you go to town, man. You talk about that time when you met ZZ Top with my neighbor who used to book him. And, and I'm going to sit here and listen. Because I'm tired right now, <laughs> but yeah, there's 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 times where I'll go out and riff and play characters and be goofy with my daughters because I like the role play. I'm playing LOL dolls with my my daughter, and she's like, "You be this person." I'm like, "Okay, hey, I'm waiting for you." You know, where are you? And, you know, they dig it. So there's different scenarios where, where we do have to do characters, and it's it's fun. Yeah, and if I see something like I, I love the show um, Love on the Spectrum which is on Netflix and it's just wonderful. It's just watching these folks with autism, just trying to negotiate the dating world in Sydney. And they're just interesting. Yes. I like dinosaurs and I hope that she likes them as well. And yeah, I find myself going around the house. If, if I watch summer Heights high, I want to be Chris Lilly. I want to fuck, fuck you, miss. I did. I, you're stupid. I didn't say anything. So yeah, there's always going to be a show that makes me want to do characters, you know? Makes you want to do stuff like that. In the case of your Kentucky neighbor, or when you're around somebody with a really, you know, either an interesting affectation or or accent or personality, do you find that you're somebody who just sort of starts mimicking those mannerisms to some degree? Yeah, I mean, I did that early on. Yeah, I've always found myself California neutral. Both parents from South America, Argentina. My dad was British educated. Spoke with speaks without an accent. We grew up watching Monty Python, the two Ronnies. Then I heard my mom, you know, Carlitos, no me digas, tiene que, you know, limpar su cuarto. You know, I heard that. And then my best friend, uh, Kevin, his parents were from Scotland. And he had Uncle Danny was over there all the time. And Uncle Ace would be, oh, listen, Danny, Kevin, he doesn't want to hear it. And I was like, oh, my God. So from an early age, yes. I was so neutral that I was profoundly interested in somebody that was more interesting than me vocally for sure and a character and so yeah I, I if I hang out with Earl I mean I'm gonna come away him and Shane are friends from Louisville and you're just gonna come away at the end of the night just or my friend Giacomo is from Peru no Carlos let me tell you something the LA Unified is not gonna do it they're not gonna give you classroom materials but I have to buy them myself and so yeah there's such strong characters that through osmosis i mean i used to hang out with henry cho comedian from knoxville tennessee and like if i spent a couple days with henry i mean i'm right there i'm just like i'm watching him i'm slowing myself down it's just yeah and you know a little bit is is something that if you're surrounded by it you you just want to fit in if i go to jersey my wife is saying horrible and orange juice you know or you know you got the so yeah you kind of 
I don't know, innately want to just fit in. So you automatically start adding a little bit of stuff to what you already have. Do you think that the um, kind of the relative anonymity of voice acting has been a positive for you? I would say so, because I consider us to be really cool jazz musicians, session studio musicians that can give you anything you want. We're not American Idol guys. We're not the big, you know, rock stars. And so there's a, there's an appreciation for that, you know, in terms of getting other jobs when you see somebody that's on camera doing a job and they're praised for doing like their own voice, like, Oh, what voice acting? You're like, well, they're acting with their voice, which is good. Uh, but they're not voice acting, you know? And then you get the exceptions like Ellen DeGeneres and, and Pixar and Billy Crystal and John Goodman in Monsters Inc. You know, they create really solid characters and they do both. Robin Williams, I got to work with Elijah Wood, uh, Hank Azaria. We all worked on Happy Feet and Happy Feet too. So there's, there's people that can do uh, both, but, I remember being in a studio city here in Los Angeles in a subway and uh, I saw Dan Castellaneta there and I was like, oh, I so wanted to out him because people had no idea that was Homer Simpson. He's like, yeah, I was just like a uh, number seven there. And I'm like, oh, just, just, just do it. You know, nobody. And so there's a wonderfulness to that. Yeah. And because when the fans recognize you, you know, they're true fans. They're like, oh my God, you're Rocco. Like, how do you know? Because I follow you. I love Rocco. And so you're like, oh, thank you. You know, it's an extra, extra layer that they have to get through. You must still get that a fair amount when people realize that Rocco is the guy from Reno 911. I do. It's a moment that generally when I go to cons and I'll have a banner behind me and I'll have all the things I do and I'm like, wait a minute, you're Mr. Weed from Family Guy and Mr. Crocker is... You're Garcia's Rocco? And I'm like, yeah, I've done all these things. Because, yeah, it is, you know, it's separated by, by what they know you for. Because they'll, they'll know one thing, and then they'll start to look you up and realize, oh, other things. You know, my neighbor, Kari Payton, you know, Teen Titans Go. He's a cyborg, but people would go, wait a minute, you're Ezekiel on Walking Dead and cyborg? He's like, yeah, you know, I've been doing both for a while. So it's that kind of thing. I assume over the last the last few years, I'm speaking of of Van uh, Kesselnet and the Simpsons, that there, there must be a lot of conversations ongoing about the Apu controversy. And I'm really curious, as somebody who has made a career of doing a lot of different accents, where you kind of land on that. I think there's there's some things that are appropriate, you know, in what we we classify as a new woke culture. I, I don't mind it. I I, I sort of don't. I sort of see it as that as long as it's not stereotypical and degrading that, you know, uh, and people are used to it, that's fine. But if somebody voluntarily wants to say, you know what, I don't need to do that character anymore. There's also that too. Um, I I didn't get to read for um, Coco. I think they wanted like authentic Mexican actors. However, Jorge Gutierrez, who ran El Tigre and Book of Life, produced Book of Life and directed with Guillermo del Toro. And me and myself and Gray Delisle and Eric Bauza, who's Bugs and everybody now, we were allowed to stay in the movie because Jorge and Guillermo sort of gave us their blessing and wanted us to be in there. So, yeah, I, I get it. I think, you know, let's try to tip the scales and balance them out where if you have an Indian role, let's play it by an Indian. If you have a Mexican role, let's use a Mexican. If you have a South American role, you don't, it, it, it appears to be in, the sort of classic darker skin minorities, however, you know, I can still play Duggard on um, Rescue Riders, but I'm not for Scotland. You know, I can play a guy named Tad Tacker, 
who's uh, this like uh, Steve Irwin guy, and I'm not from Australia. You seem to be able to, you know, I'm playing out from the South and talks like this. And that, those seem to be okay. And I, and I sort of get that because it, it falls into the category of sort of white actors. But I, I don't mind it. I don't mind it. it, it it's, it's really, there's enough roles going around that if, if I happen to run into a situation where one of the characters I did and they need to cast somebody in a, authentically, it's fine. I'll do another one. The sense I get from it, and, and I think there's something to this, is that maybe traditionally voice acting has been pretty white. So, you know, maybe if you're, if you're having these characters, it is an opportunity for people to break in that haven't necessarily had that opportunity in the past. I think Boondocks is one of those shows to, to really, you know, hire a lot of great black voice actors and great black, black actors and Phil Lamar's and Cedric Yarbrough's, Gary Anthony Williams, Witherspoon, I think, I was on there for a while. And yeah, he was and great, Jill Talley, Jill, yeah. Jill Talley's Tom Kenny's wife, you know, doing all the mm-hmm. Ann Coulter stuff. But yeah, that was one of the first shows to do that. And uh, what was the, oh God, the family, I played Puff the Dog, dog it's an ABC show, The Family or something like that. But yeah, th- that was one of the more instrumental shows in hiring those type of actors. And uh, I think it's important. I think it's important for people to have a voice. You know, the Casa Grandes that I work on now, we're multicultural. We have a, a Puerto Rican, we have Mexican, we have me, South American, Miguel Puga, the creator, Lalo Alcaraz, the developmental consultant, they're, they're Mexican. Uh, Alan is one of the producers, he's white. Uh, same with Michael. But we're multicultural, but it is coming from Miguel Puga's vision. You know, he, he wanted to write a story about his extended family. And so... I like that they're at the control. They're at the reins of, of the show. And that's important that, to give people a voice. It's not necessarily a sense that there isn't an accent that you would be willing to attempt. It's, it's more of kind of, you know, trying, trying to be cognizant and conscious of the way that these people are casting roles. Yeah. Yeah. What's the type of character? Is it stereotypical? Should I do it? Do I feel right about it? Oh no, this is a pretty cool character. Um, and retroactively, that's the, that's the way I always felt about the Taco Bell dog. The Taco Bell dog was cool. It was playing against type. It was never, oh, I love Taco Bell. I have to have it. It was just like, no, man, this food is cool. So I thought it was counter to what is happening today. But in this world, it's, it's probably not an ad that gets made. And, and the time was the time. And that's fine. We move on. We do, we do different things. But yeah, I'm open to trying anything. And then if, you know, somebody wants to have it uh, not be a thing anymore and there's nothing you can do about it, you go, okay. And obviously, Reno 911 is a show that's very aggressively lampooned the police for a really long time. When the show comes back on Quibi, and obviously a lot of people are having a lot of discussions around the police right now, is this something that, that the, the cast is kind of actively discussing, like how to approach playing a police officer? Yeah, and the episodes that have been airing on Quibi, you know, it was one of the things Tom, Ben, and Carrie sought out is like, we got to hit the nail on the head. You know, one of the, the running storylines is we have to find a white person to shoot. Uh, we have to shoot an unarmed white person to balance things out. And it's Chris Tallman, and he used to be the KKK guy. He was the proud boy. And they, they have a whole running theme through that. And so, yeah, they said, let's knock it on the head. Cedric Yarbrough shows up on a call and a woman's like, oh, my God, there, there, there's black there's black babies in my pool. She's like, there's black people in my pool. He's like, what? What are they doing? Oh, why are you calling? Are you a Karen? And she's like, they're drowning. And he's like, oh, shit, I got to save the black babies. So, you know, they hit the nail on the head. They're like, 
We're going right after it. Because we're the, in that scenario, we're the idiots. We're the dumb dumb. And police forces around the country have always loved Reno. They've always appreciated it. There's a few. Even when we worked at uh, Carson Sheriff Station, I would say 95% of the people working there loved it. Some people were like, eh. They never felt offended in the way that, like, obviously you're kind of like these, these buffoonish characters? No, not at all. I never experienced that as a stand-up comic. Going, going to different places around the world, Iowa, Chicago, Kansas City. No, I always had police departments coming to my show going, dude, we love you. You got to do that thing. You know, they needed a relief on the other side of the coin. It's like, it's a hard profession. You need some comedic relief and they dug it. That was my experience. Aside from the more current subject matter on the show, how is it different doing this show in the Quibi format versus doing it for Comedy Central? You know, all the, all the meat is sort of stripped down and you get down to the sketches, which people really rewatch on YouTube. So in that sense, it works perfectly because you're doing little uh, vignettes. But I do miss the soap opera aspect. I do miss letting a, a slow burn or having some character development. But it's fast and furious and bigger explosions and greater gags. So it works, but I, I definitely miss the old stuff. I would rather, I would prefer to do it in a longer form format myself. Uh, where you can just let things develop and have relationship between the characters and stuff like that. I heard you discussing it somewhere and, and, you know, you kind of mentioned the Quibi algorithms, which obviously like if you work for any kind of streaming service, that's something that you're going to be dealing with, but probably even more of the case with Quibi where you're dealing with like eight minutes or less per episode. What is that like? You know, what what is it like sort of dealing with this, the sense of like, here here's, here's what's going to play or here's what's going to, being memeable or gifable versus just having kind of a loose script that you're playing around with. Yeah. Um, it's like, you know, you want a big, you know, New York steak and they're like, you don't you don't have time for that. Here's a hamburger. It tastes pretty good. You'll like it. And it kind of feels like that. Um, but if it's done right, it's, it's a, like a dessert. It's not a main meal. It's not an entree. It's a really good appetizer or a really good dessert that you can like, I'm going to eat like four of these now. That'll, that'll make an entree. You know, I jones on Quibi. I watch a ton of stuff. I just finished uh, My Heart, which I really liked and really broad and buffoonish. But yeah, it's difficult to make it. I think it doesn't resonate as much for me. That's that's what I feel when I watch it back. I go, there's some great moments, but there was something about the old Reno that just resonated. I really liked all the relationship stuff. So again, to me, that's the, the market difference between trying to fit in this quibby short form uh, for, format. You know, shows like Agua Donkeys were ma- able to make it work because it was a through line. And the underlying story was two guys working at a pool company want to date one girl working there. Boss says, can't do that. That's against the rules. Well, we got to get ourselves fired or do these really cool gainers off the third story of this hotel. And that runs through the whole 10 episodes. And I, I kind of like that version. I kind of wish that we could try a Reno where there was one story, like when George Lopez, like the mayor is coming to town or we're gearing up for a big police parade and we're a little nervous. And that's because within that arc, we could still do our goofy calls. And that's the way we did the long form. But we just didn't do it that way this time. It was just goofy call, goofy call, goofy call, goofy call. There's something there, you know, there's something that, that really works about this. Not only the show that lasted for what, like seven seasons the first time around, and that you turned into a movie and that now you're able to, you know, make into these, these eight minute clips. I mean, is it just, is it, is it the characters? Is it, is it the underlying dynamic between the actors? What, 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 what about it has kept, 
you know, not only like viewers coming back to it, but has, has kept the core cast coming back. I think we always wanted to, you know, I remember doing an event maybe eight years ago at Nisi. It was for a sheriff down in Carson. He was running for election and we said, let's put on the uniforms and go help him out and make some quick videos. And, and, and on the bus, we were talking about, we got to come back. We got to do this again. It was so wonderfully done. The original pilot was in 2001, which preceded Super Troopers. And then by the time we came out, we were both emerging at the same time. But it was such a style of comedy that was wonderful and different, preceded uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, I believe. And it was just honest. It was just goofy. It was just, it was so pure because we didn't know what each other was going to say. And I remember doing the original pilot in 2001 in San Pedro, California, and the crew was laughing, the gaffers and and the electricians. And we're like, okay, if those guys are laughing, you know you got something good because they are jaded, they're tired, they're working the full day. And so we just knew we had a great, great chemistry. And I think people, especially during the pandemic, were were really wanting to be nostalgic and go back and experience something that they really revered. And so that was part of the appeal. And just those characters are great archetypes, you know? They're really a lot of fun. I think that's why it's lasted so long. Is it like being in a band in the sense that, like, there's this understanding that, you know, that there's going to be more opportunities to do this regardless of what form they take down the road? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you're in the band. You're like, man, when you need me, I've got the polyester. I've got a fake mustache. I'll be there. I felt that way about Rocco and Static Ling. You know, Rocco was 25 years between recordings and we all had it. We all had our instruments and say, yeah, anytime you call us, we'll, we'll put it back together again. So it feels that way with Reno too. You know, if we're lucky and the pandemic clears and we all get a vaccine that works and people are willing to be on board and if you come back, I'd love to do it again for sure. I'll always like playing that character. It must be difficult to inhabit that character for that long because, like, he's he's not a good person. No, it was. I remember, like, we'd go for two weeks on and when we originally shot it. It'd be like two weeks on, I'm doing this, and then four days off. And there, I, I remember just finishing. I'd finish and go, like, nobody likes me. I don't feel like anybody likes me. And even though it was a comedy, it wasn't like I was Daniel Day-Lewis in my left foot, but you kind of inhabited that guy. Well, you guys are idiots and you're going to be like that. Then I don't want to be your friend. And you just kind of held that. And it was like, I don't like myself right now. When the show was being created, there was this rush to get to come up with an idea, essentially like over the course of the weekend. Yeah. You essentially created that character. Were you channeling something deep down inside that you don't necessarily like that you're able to, to come up with this character pretty fully formed? So I think it's my own sense of justice of like, I hate people that leave me shopping carts and none of those are me. I've done that in my standup for years and now it's a big meme or a gif or write it, right? Leaving shopping carts or, or, you know, blocking traffic. I've always been a, somebody that has an overly zealous sense of justice and that I hate people that do that. And so I could put it all into that guy and do a little bit of Barney Five where, you know, when we're talking in the classroom and see, Rich choking me, you're doing something wrong, let go. You know, I've kind of blended all those things together. And yeah, there's definitely a part of my myself and that guy wanting to be liked, but just pushing people away, you know? So yeah, I think I drew upon some some uh, affectations that I have for sure. Probably one of the reasons why the disconnect is so strong between, between Garcia and, and Rocco is not, not only because of the, the like obviously the accents, but be, because they are such polar opposite characters. And I think one of the things that made Rocco really remarkable is you didn't see a lot of cartoons with this, 
at the center, this just really kind of gentle, soft-spoken character. Yeah, he and Laszlo, which were both were creations. Yeah, you know, I was, people always say, what's your favorite character? It'll always be Rocco. He's so Winnie the Pooh. He, somebody asked, that was a question, who would you spend a, on an island with? I said, of all your characters, I said, Rocco. Because he'd be like, oh, well, I guess we'll get saved one day. But if we don't, we can have these coconuts. You know, just like, okay. What is it? He's a very Zen Winnie the Pooh character. And, you know, we what preceded us was Ren and Stimpy, you know. And we'd often play in and Billy West and Christopher Lucy. And that was crazy, wonderful text. Avery twisted world. But he was like, no, Scotland, you idiot, you worm. Hey, no, sir, I don't like it. It was just bizarre. I guess Stimpy is, is kind of a general character, but he only exists because there's also a Ren. Yeah. Like my happy helmet. He's less self-aware for sure than Rocco. And Rocco was. He's like a 20-year-old missing mom and dad out on his own, working at a comic book store, trying to figure things out. He's just sweet. It is a lot of it was Joe Murray, you know. Joe Murray telling me the story one day, having lunch, and he goes, oh, yeah, I used to sell Christmas trees door to door. If I wasn't selling the tree, I was selling a ticket to a lot that you could go buy your ticket here and you can come to the lot. And I went, that's so Rocco. Hello, I'm selling Christmas trees. Actually, I don't have a tree, but I've got a ticket. And if you come to a lot, there's lots of great trees. And then you show up at the lot and they're all ratty, Charlie Brown looking things. You know, and I said, Joe, that is so Rocco, you know. And obviously that was his vision for the character. And that voice just seemed to encapsulate it, you know. Um, and so it worked. And same with Laszlo. Hey, Bean Scouts, this is going to be a great summer. And just hopeful, ever hopeful in the face of, you know, I, I, would, I think Rocco's, you know, we did Static Cling pre-pandemic, but I think if we did another type of thing right now, it's, it's a show that people need. Again, Rocco reminds me of the show uh, Love on the Spectrum. These people are so sweet and so true to just being a human being without pretense, without ego. And it's amazing to watch. You're like, oh, nice human beings. that like, you know, the girl, they're out of date. And the girl's like, I don't like this. I'm going to go, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if it was something I said. Oh, well. And it's like, oh, they're not like, yeah, so <laughs> they're just like, this didn't work out. I'll try it again. You're like, oh, my God. You feel like crying. And so Rock has a little bit of that. You know, Rock is, he's Hope Springs Eternal. He's just a fun character. So Garcia's like, well, I think everything's going to be ruined and you don't like me and you think I'm a racist and uh, dangles after me. And Garcia's not the character we need right now. No, no. <laughs> when you got the Rocco gig, I mean, obviously that was a, a huge career defining moment for you. Um, yeah. Were you, how actively were you pursuing a career in voice acting? Not really that much at all. I didn't really know about it. Remember that time Greg Proops had done uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, and was doing a few things, and then I just was in San Francisco, and I had this audition. I made a voice tap, uh, voice record tape on a push and play recorder, sent it in. I came in, and didn't know what I was doing. No agent, George Maestri, Nick Jennings, and Joe Murray, Sutro Towers, home, San Francisco, trying all kinds of voices. And then finally, they just kind of came up with this. Hi guys, and they're like, "Yeah, let's try that." And then Nickelodeon said yes, and then we made a pilot. And then they said, I was on the road in Seattle, Washington at Last Laugh, or Just for Laugh, or Last Laugh, and I got a call, a payphone. Rocco's going to series. I'm like, yes. 
I don't have to be on the road as much anymore. This is awesome. You were already at that point trying to get away from doing stand-up comedy on the road? Yeah, for me, it was a means to an end always. I didn't know how I was going to get there, but I didn't know voiceover was going to be the ticket to get me away from solely relying on stand-up. You know, after that, I, I had done some more stand-up. I still do every once in a while. But like Tom Kenny, once we got to voiceover, we're like, oh, yeah, I don't really want to do the stand-up as much anymore. This is more fun. This is more what I want to do. When you say means to an end, what, what was the end that you were envisioning at the time? I think sitcoms, movies, the Adam Sandler kind of career. And it, it never hasn't gotten that far yet, um, but it got to voiceover. And that's pretty darn good, you know? What a great ticket. You know, he was on stage doing, ah, I'm going to do this character. And they're not killing. Hey, let me tell you something. And oh, no me digas. California Spanish interior decorator. And I didn't know I was preparing myself for a career in voice, voiceover. And lucky enough, it worked out. You know, right place, right time, right voice. Especially, you know, for Roku. And then, and then that kicked everything off to a point. And then the Taco Bell dog was another point. And then Reno was another point. All these, all these lily pads that kept jumping off. All these lily pads and just, it sounds like there was never really an extended period when you weren't able to find work. Pretty good. Yeah, I've been, you know, had months, but never years without work. The months feel like years. You read tons of audition copy and you don't get booked. But yeah, I've always been pretty steady to, to say the least. So that's been pretty good. And it's people, the relationships I've made, my ability to get better as an actor and get challenged and uh yeah new projects coming up you know and things beget things you know reno gave me some notoriety for people that you know didn't think that i was doing that much on camera and i was like oh yeah you're you're on this show you would be great for this show so it kind of carries over you know you said obviously at least semi-jokingly that you're not adam sandler yet but do you get a sense of still continuing to move toward a specific goal or are you at a point where like just being a, a voice actor that you could be perfectly happy doing what you're doing right now. Yeah, definitely could be, but there's always that hunger, envy, jealousy, you know, those are things that might drive you, but the, the, the desire to create, you know, I wrote a movie, it's called witness infection. You can go to witnessinfection.com. You probably know about it. Co-wrote it with Joe Michelle Melian, cast Aaron Hayes, Gary Anthony Williams, Rob Belushi, Joe Reitman, myself, Fred Ernst, to name a few, Vince Dunn. You got that pitch down, Carlos. <laughs> yeah. I wrote that and I'm, I'm writing other stuff with Jill and yeah. we're looking for distribution and I self-finance this one and even if we write a script and nobody buys it, well, we'll write another one and I really like that. I enjoy it. I pitch shows all the time. I've pitched numbers of shows. I've shot things with Lorraine Newman and Mindy Sterling and tried to pitch it um, in the same format as Reno. I did a movie called The Callback, which was about an actor auditioning and all the archetypes that are auditioning for the same role. So I'm always trying to create, always trying to do something. So if it pans out that I, I get something huge, fine. If not, I've got that. I've got guinea pigs in the background. I, I've got my voiceover stuff that I'm going to pitch and I've got my voiceover career. That'll be fine. Uh, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be satisfied continuing doing this voiceover career. For sure. I have to imagine one of the difficult things of doing something like voiceover is just is, you know, and, and we were touching on this at the beginning of, of the interview, but is is budgeting your time. It's not quite like doing a sitcom where you're like, this is this is kind of the one thing that I can do or a movie. This is the one thing I can do for a specific period. You're able to take a ton of projects on this on at the same time. And 
in a sense, is that a difficulty? Is it kind of an embarrassment of riches in trying to figure out just like how many plates you can spin at once? Yeah, you're constantly auditioning, and you can literally be on the set somewhere in your trailer or in a hotel room while you're waiting to do something or be at a con and record voiceover auditions. You know, um, I remember being on the set of Kevin James' pilot, Kevin Can Wait, in uh, Long Island, Beth Page, and we were there for two and a half weeks, and I had my porter, I had my and I was record, sending in auditions. And I actually booked another film called Take the Ten when I auditioned in the business office of the Marriott Courtyard where we were staying. Uh, and so, yeah, you're constantly auditioning while you're somewhere. And voiceover, you know, they come in. You've got three a day, two a day. I got my little portable recorder. I can do it in my car if I need to when, I, when I'm at Lake Tahoe or, you know. So, yeah, constantly running into the booths to do an audition. So there's so many things you want to audition for. It's like shopping with a big net or fishing with a big net. You got to scoop up something, you know. For a while there, you're fairly active on YouTube. I was I was checking because I, I thought maybe you were doing some quarantine content too, but it it seems like you haven't really updated that much in a yeah, year or so. It was Joe Erratic, Joe Erratica, when uh, the Tiger King first came out. I kind of did this. Uh, hey, how are you doing to make Joe Erratica? I'm a stuffed animal king. <laughs> yeah, a stuffed tiger. He talked about the virtues of uh, loving stuffed animals over real animals. Nobody gets hurt in the deal. And that went pretty well. That was got some bites. But now I'm doing things on TikTok. I'm learning things from Ben Giroux, who's an actor on Kid Danger. And, and he plays, well, well, he plays the toddler. Well, well, well. And what he's doing on TikTok, I'm borrowing stuff. From, I've shared some stuff with him where we do voiceover battles. It's his creation where we're, we're doing each other's voices. And that's boosted up my TikTok stuff. And so I'm, I'm going that way now. But we're saving stuff to put back on YouTube. Um, we're throwing old stuff that I did and throwing that on a YouTube channel. So right now, just with the kids, my wife does the lion's share with the kids, but I'm there enough and playing dolls with my kids, running to the booth, riding with my friend Jill. And so like these YouTubers or like these guys on TikTok, I don't have the freedom to sit, sit out there and spit out content, but I just did my second Rocco piece. My first one was garbage date is a very dangerous thing. And then my friend said, you need to shoot it in three segments. So my first, my next one is laundry day is a very dangerous day. And you can check it out on TikTok. But I'm learning to do things like that. Just put content out because people are like, oh my God, Rocco's on TikTok. No way. You know, and it's a big deal with people. And I do cameos and all that stuff. And you're just trying to pour out content. But the real thing I enjoy is creating an outline, creating a summary and writing a script with my friend Joe and seeing if we could turn this idea into somewhat of a coherent story. And then you write it, you see who likes it, and we'll see what happens. But it's a long shot. It's not Ben and Tom, you know, who made a career out of screenwriting and had to go through studios and rewrites and the pain and aggravation of not getting most of their projects done. You know, that's a whole different level. We're just independent writers here going, hey, maybe we can make a relationship and somebody will like our film and maybe somebody will finance this for us. Do you get a sense that there is more opportunity open for you now than ever before based just solely on the kind of, you know, the sheer number of streaming services and the sheer number of places looking for content. Yeah. But they are like, you know, you know, uh, Seth Rogen's new film about his grandfather dying in a pickle barrel and coming back again. You know, that's a pretty big studio film and that's being streamed on HBO max. And I, we were, we did not make it with HBO max. We're going to go with some other deals, but well, there is a lot more, streaming things they're still looking for major well-produced content and so that the, the low budget guys might have a shot but we're still looking we could still we could still land somewhere like there so 
because these other smaller distribution companies will constantly pitch those other streaming channels. And we've won a couple of awards. We've gotten some good reviews. And one of them, which said we were way better than Jim Jarmusch's Dead Don't Die. And I'm a Jim Jarmusch fan, but that movie missed for me. That movie. I was going to say, I love Jim Jarmusch, but not, not his finest hour. I love Mystery Train. I've seen it dozens of times. Went to see Screaming Jay Hawkins live. I love Strangers in Paradise. Down by Law. Dead Man. He's so good that that film did not work. And so I was like, you know, here's a film that spent millions of dollars in our little films. Like, ours is better. Check it out. <laughs> Take that as a W. You know, better better than not Jim Jarmusch's best, I think, is is about as good as any of us can hope for in this yeah. world. Yes. He's, a, he's entitled to, to strike out every once in a while. But I mean, fire, Jack. Fire. Roberto Benigni, you know, it just... Stranger Than Paradise I saw in college, and I just thought, who is this guy? Why are these scenes so long with no dialogue? I like Screaming Jay Hawkins, so don't bug me. Why am I so captivated by this? He's so good. Mystery Train is just beautiful. It's so beyond Wes Anderson, bizarre and wonderful, and the color scheme and Buscemi and Screaming Jay Hawkins and that red hat, and it's just bizarre. The ghost of Elvis Presley and... It's just wonderful. Flowers was another good one with, mm-hmm. with Jessica Lange. Broken Flowers. So the social stuff, TikTok and, and YouTube, I mean, is that something that you find fulfilling in and of itself? How much of it is just kind of, you know, you trying to promote the brand? I can't say I'm as addicted to the followers as my daughter. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure. You're not as addicted as a child. That's fair. But no, it is. A, I get addicted to the numbers because of following. Because if you have a big TikTok following, if you have a big YouTube following, if you have a big Twitter following, Instagram following, it's going to lead to more work. So as a professional tool, uh, I get excited when I have an idea. And the, the Joe Erotica thing was really fun. It was really one of the first things I really shoved and did something every day and put it on Instagram. So yeah, I get excited. Like now I have ideas uh, from TikTok. Ben Giroux, when I did his voiceover challenge, I went from like a thousand followers on TikTok to like 12,000 within two weeks. And that's all because of how Ben, he likes it properly. It's a lot of energy. It's content that people are familiar with. And there's a technique. And I scan through it to see what works and what doesn't work. My daughter wants me to do these latest dance moves. And there's people doing some really innovative stuff. And then there's a lot of garbage. But it's pretty fascinating. So yes, I, I think it is a valuable tool to get who you are out there in, in a unique way and for to to broaden your fan base to, for people that didn't know that i did rocco or crocker or bain and garcia we did one of those wipe 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 it and i did me turning into garcia turning into crocker and i did one with my daughter you know the people like oh i didn't know this guy was garcia so there's there's all kinds of new tools that you can use that are fascinating to me. And I do it for, I do it for work. I really do. I'm too, I'm satisfied with my friends, my family and our socially distant whiskey nights, my soccer, although my team lost. Uh, Yeah, that stuff, that fulfills me. This stuff fulfills me work-wise. Let's just put it that way. Do you get a sense of what sort of comedy people are looking for right now? You know, given like, obviously, I mean, we were complaining about the state of the world well before the pandemic hit. It's been a rough number yeah. of years right now. Is there a sense of how comedy might change because of all of this? I don't know. I really love Dead to Me. I just thought it was it just was in my wheelhouse. I love the writing. I love the acting. I love 
the directing. So I love that. I love, for me, I love the British office, extras. I love Summer Heights High. I love vulnerability. American sitcoms are very hard to have vulnerability, but boy, Linda Cardinelli and Christina Applegate is phenomenal in Dead to Me. And same with Jason Marsden. They're just so vulnerable and fucked up and screwed up and trying to make it right. And so I love Martin Clunes and um, Doc Martin. That was a show to me that people should see for the pandemic. It's a sweet show about a, a, a London. It's, it's basically um, Northern Exposure meets House. And Martin Clunes is a royal, is a surgeon in London. Can't stand the sight of blood all of a sudden. And now he has to work in a small fishing village as a, as a general practitioner. And you meet all the crazy people in Port Wen. The real town is called Port Isaac. And it's just so, I want to grab a pint of beer and I want to go to Port Wen and go, let's go, Doc Martin, can you look at my foot? I'm sorry, you have to arrange an appointment through the secretary. You know, and I'm like, I got, I want to watch the show. I want to be comforted. So yes, comedy, I think, will toward, turn towards what comforts you. But at the same time, I like, Dead to me. I like that type of comedy that's dark and takes chances. Uh, people love Fleabag. I didn't see Fleabag yet, so I'm, I'm lucky. I get there's a lot of stuff I can still yeah, get to see. It's great. The British definitely have mastered that kind of the comedy of awkwardness, well, of, of uncomfortability. They're willing to embrace tragedy and sadness. You know, they're just willing to go there, and we have an aversion to it. I think. Except for All in the Family, was Norman Lear did it with All in the Family and his shows. He was he was not afraid to go there. I missed that. I guess you know maybe maybe this relates back to the, the Reno nine one one question of dealing with some of these topical issues. Um, you know, a, as you're, you know, as you now have some kind of time to think about these things, and and as you're actively writing and 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 shopping shopping these shows around. I mean, obviously, you are somebody who does have. Uh, political stances and has done to some degree political comedy, um, you know, but do you, do you get a sense of whether the comedy that you want to create is something that, that touches on some of these issues or that is kind of pure escapism? Both. Uh, there's an animated show I was pitching called off the curb and you can look it up on YouTube. Um, and we're talking about recasting because I talked to Cedric Yarborough about having two white actors play, uh, black folks sitting at a cafe where I play the Filipino waiter and it's John DiMaggio and Fred Tattashore. And, you know, I talked about it with Cedric. I go, what do you, what do you think, Cedric? And this is right after George Floyd. And he's like, you know, I know John and I know Fred and I love their characters and I don't really find it insulting, but you know, what the heck? Why not? I think we could change. Yeah. Make a change. And like, let's make John from New Orleans. Let's make Fred somebody else and make them white. And I went, you know what? It kind of makes the dynamic better that, you know, these two black folks would hang out with somebody from New Orleans and another white nerdy guy. And they, every week they meet, every day meet. Like, let me tell you what's wrong with the world. Oh, I'll tell you what. Because I was fascinated. I'll tell you, I'm fascinated by oh, the pharmacist. The pharmacist from the ninth ward next to St. Bernard Parish who's trying to save his son and expose uh, the, the pharmacy killers. We, we, we discuss things like that. And that's kind of a form of escapism because you're just listening to these guys rip. But... I pitched a show about a casting office and with Mindy Sterling and, and Lorraine Newman. And it's just, to me, it was more like the British version of the office, just sad, trying to make it. The screenplay that Jillian and I are writing is more towards not quite lifetime or Hallmark, but it's more family oriented. And it's more of a maybe PG light 
type of story. Even our comedy uh, movie, which has some gore in it, it was still lighthearted and broad and goofy and fun. I, I, like, I like pitching both. But man, like I said, if I could write a show like Dead to Me or be a part of that show. And it, uh, a serious show I love is The Alienist. And I love Mark Logan's first effort of Penny Dreadful. The second one's okay. But I love how those shows, The Alienist and, and Penny Dreadful, just transported me into a different world where I wanted to be in 1891 Victorian England and I want to be in turn of the century New York with what's going on, you know. I love that stuff. That's an escape for me. Again, getting back to the idea of kind of inhabiting the character of Gar- Garcia and how how sort of psychologically damaging something like that can be. You know, I, I guess one of the questions you have to ask yourself is when all of this horrible stuff is happening in the world and and you're in the middle of it you know you're going to be spending hours and hours writing this thing and hopefully you know doing production on it down the road um do you necessarily want to be in something dark and depressing (laughs) in the midst of everything else oh yeah that's always a topic of therapy isn't healthy can you handle it if it's coming from your soul you know you paint what you paint you know you talk about goya and his paintings the Spanish painter, like just dark, like a, a god fighting. Atlas, Atlas eating his son, yeah. Yeah, it's just, man, the Goya painting is so dark, even the winter scenes. So if that's what's in somebody's head and it's it's not coaxed out or forced, then you've got to get it out. That's what we're taught is that uh, a genius has to be, necessarily has to be tortured. Yeah, if if I would classify myself in that in that arena, yeah, I mean, Tom and Ben did both. They wrote movies that were fun, Taxi and this and that and Night at the Museum. And then they wrote Reno, which is really kind of dark and twisted. And there's a cat being chewed up by an air conditioning unit. And, you know, uh, Garcia sleeping with the, what he thinks is a dead hooker and drunkenness and debauchery and failings and misgivings and shooting the wrong people. And so, yeah, it is hard. Your brain, it does affect you. If, you, if you're, if you're going to inhabit it, it's a dangerous time to do it because you want to be, but if you offset it with friends and family, you, you can balance it. I mean, I spent if I I spend time on Twitter for Stephanie Miller, which I do every Wednesday morning, and I try to start Monday night or Tuesday so I can get caught up. And it it's dark and nasty. If you lay off Twitter for a week and you go back on it, it's well, it's vile. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. It's nasty and judgmental and but fascinating, you know. And I'll get into it. And I'm like, what am I doing? So there, you do feel better when you're off it. I think you really do because it is so dark right now. I don't want to be, be reminded of a possible. Alex Jones today said, you might have to kill some people. You know, just like, okay, I don't want to read that. I don't want to read that this guy has a lifeline to a bunch of, you know, but that's what I get for being on Twitter. You know, so there's a, I'll go watch something happy. Although my wife and I like Dateline. She can't, she didn't want to watch I'll Be Gone in the Dark. And I know Patton and I met uh, McNamara a while ago at the club, at the health club. And I just find her, what her, her path and her journey fascinating, but it's hard to watch. It's hard to watch right now. We couldn't do The Handmaid's Tale. Not with this Supreme Court, not with this administration. Can't do it. Too real. Can't watch this show. Nope. Yeah, so there, there is that. But yeah, if I'm going to pitch something, I think it's why I like writing this thing I'm writing with Joe right now. It's slight. 
it's happy, it's fun. And if Reno comes back, then I'll have to go explore something that's a little bit le- more dark. But it, it is comedy. At least the people are cool. So there's that. 